What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of Greenrope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Fetchstock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Hey, we have a new segment on our show called Ask a CEO. Yes, hashtag Ask a CEO. Do you have burning questions that you want to get answered by a CEO? Are there things that you just want to learn? And maybe you've heard the show enough and you say, man, I would love to be able to ask that CEO. Well, feel free to send me all of the questions that you desire to get CEOs to answer. You can send me an email at chris at highlevelwisdom.com. That's chris at highlevelwisdom.com. We'll continue to collect all of the questions that we get in and we'll send them out to our network of CEOs and we'll make sure that we shout you out and make sure that we get your answers that you're looking for. Maybe you need to do something different inside of your company as an executive. Maybe you should try to bring together your executive team with your emerging leadership and see how we can get better at communicating, how we can get better at building succession planning, and more importantly, how do we get better at building out the roadmap to better institutional knowledge being kept inside of our companies? Well, the one-day workshop for high-level wisdom is just what you need. Feel free to send me an email, chris at highlevelwisdom.com, and we can have a free 20-minute conversation just to be able to understand your company, your needs, and how we may be able to help you. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. Hey, and welcome to part two of my interview with Scott Hartley. Now, who is he, you might say? Well, you should go back and listen to Earlier this week on Tuesday, the first part of our interview, he is the author of The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. He's not only worked at places like Google and Facebook, but he's also been a former partner of a $2 billion venture capital firm. He's been around Silicon Valley for quite some time, so he knows the ins and outs. And I thought this would be a fascinating conversation to talk about how you can actually be uh, not of the techie world, but still be a part of the techie world. Um, so I think this is just a fascinating conversation and I know you will love part two as well. Listen to part two of our interview right now. Something I'm kind of thinking about as, as you're as you're talking here is, you know, when you start talking about how that looks over time, uh, you also get into, uh, you know, where where things are going. I, I'm very curious um, around the ideas of now we're getting into our jobs are eventually because they're they're some of them are more technical in nature. 
you've seen the reports, I'm sure, that automation is just on the helm, right? Uh, you see all these articles about, well, you know, eventually a lot of jobs are going to be automated. And that scares a lot of people, especially if you are a non-technical person, right? Uh, because generation aside, if I don't have the technical background, uh, I might be out of a job. And I'm concerned about, you know, my job becoming in a, a, a robots, you know, uh, role and not just in manufacturing. Right. We're talking about a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of um, AI, uh, you know, being put into, you know, some of the most, you know, um, uh, common roles, whether it's through, you know, whether it's through the financial banking centers all the way down to construction. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there. Um, so let's go back to your premise here. You know, so if I've got a liberal arts degree, how am I going to survive with, you know, all of these roles starting to eventually become more robotic in nature and more automated? And is that a, is that a, a myth that a lot of jobs are eventually going to be uh, automated or what what is your perspective? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's something that, you know, in, in the Twitter, the Twitter universe that we live in, 140 characters at a time, it's easy to read the headlines and think, oh my gosh, you know, this is a, a scary, brave new world that we're all, we're all doomed. I think, you know, if you read down to paragraph four or five in, in many of these articles, not all of them, but many of them, um, and you listen to sort of what the experts are saying, it's a far more sanguine view than, than I think that the fearful headlines would, would, would sort of communicate. So generally, the way I would think about this, and, and I'm paraphrasing work from some great uh, MIT economists, uh, David Otter and, and Darren Asimoglu, um, they talk about sort of routine and non-routine tasks and, and manual and cognitive tasks. And if you think about our jobs, all of our jobs have different tasks within them. And some of the tasks are really routine, they're really repetitive, the things we do every day, um, they're things where you may even have best practices written on the wall or something like that. Those routine tasks are things that because they're done over and over and over, those things can be scripted, those things can be coded, those things can be baked into what's, you know, fancily called machine learning, right? Um, so if you think about the cognitive tasks at your job, uh, those things that are highly repeatable or repetitive, those things could probably over time become, you know, the, the task of, of machine learning and that can really help free up your time to do a lot of other things. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about robotics. Where that fits into this equation is if you think about manual work, so you're doing something over and over again that's in a highly repeatable fashion um, in a manual environment, so not cognitive but, but manual, um, these sorts of repetitive tasks are done by robots. So I think if you're thinking about your job, if your job is a manual job and you do something over and over again, that's it, you know, sort of the threat of robots. If you're in a job that's a cognitive job and you're doing something over and over again, that's sort of at the threat of, of machine learning. And so that's one way to think about it. But, um, but really, you know, McKinsey came out with a study, and, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that, um, in January of this year where they said, you know, wait a minute, um, Oxford said in 2014 that 47% of of US jobs were at high risk of machine automation. And that seems like a really high number. And so they said, let's, let's take a step back. And what they did is they looked at all these tasks within 800 different jobs, and they found that for around 60% of jobs, so you know, good section of jobs, only 30% of the tasks within those jobs are these highly routine, repeatable tasks. So in reality, you know, I think when you sit in your car and you say, okay, well, self-driving cars, like, 
the Jetsons uh, are coming. Um, well, in reality, you know, it's, it's not so much that, sorry about that, um, that, these, that these jobs are, uh, you know, completely going to change. Or these cars are going to completely be able to drive on their own. Instead, you know, that, that will happen over time, but in the interim sort of intervening period of time, it'll be this sort of driver assist mode where you still sit in the driver's seat. Maybe you have lane guidance. Maybe if you get on the freeway going, you know, a certain constant, constant speed, um, the car can stay within the lanes. You know, similarly, if you go to your desktop, I think that what we'll see are, you know, sort of desktop assist instead of driver assist, where you'll have uh, machine learning and, and AI helping you do your job better. Um, but for the foreseeable future, I don't think that we'll see, you know, robots sitting in your chair uh, doing the job for you. So really, you know, to your question, what does this mean for a liberal arts major? What does this mean for somebody that's not uh, deeply, deeply technical? Well, the, the positive side is that when you take away all these rote, uh, simple tasks within a job, those things, uh, you know, those things go away and, and are in the kind of purview of machine learning. Um, the things that are left over are these complex tasks. And so when you've got more complexity, this kind of higher level creative thinking, uh, collaboration to trade tasks between one another, um, these are the environments where communication become really important. Those are the things that minimize sort of the transaction costs when we're trading a lot of tasks. If you're good at one thing and I'm good at something else, um, that requires a lot of coordination and communication. Sure. So in actuality, you know, these are the skills that uh, within the complex work environment become more and more important. Um, and so there's a, there's a researcher that I cite, you know, at the end of my book. Uh, his name is David Deming. And he's an education economist at, at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he talks all about sort of the need for these soft skills. And the reason being is because, you know, soft skills are this dark matter. We can't quite quantify why they're important. We know that they should matter and they do matter, but we can't quantify exactly how or why. And he actually, you know, makes this argument about trading tasks where, you know, in this complex work environment where, you know, Chris, you're good at one thing and I'm good at something else, we've actually got to trade, trade those tasks. And in order to do that, we've got to communicate well. And actually, that's, the, that's sort of the value of those soft skills is in reducing those transaction costs, making our work environment flow uh, more efficiently. So you know, those, are some of the, those are some of the benefits, I think, of, of having these degrees, um, in addition to you know, not in replacement of being uh, you know, technical enough to be dangerous and sort of learning some of the basic skills, not being intimidated by them. Um, but I think if you can collaborate and in, in sort of bring together this uh, you know, ability to, to manage the chunks or the building blocks of tech and then you know, also have some of these soft skills, those are really the, the skill sets that are going to position you well kind of going into the future. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you a very <laughs> outlier question um, related to what you just said. And, and, and it's it, it's um, it's something that I, I don't know the answer to. You may have a different perspective on this, but as you talk about some of these types of degrees, right, whether it's a liberal arts degree, whether it's a techie degree. Do you think that over time, the meaning of having the piece of paper has either changed or is changing based on where we are going uh, in the world with, you know, all of the different uh, things to be able to to be learned at this point? Because if you think about it right for for a, a very uh, long period of time in our history, we didn't have technology. Um, a lot of things were very manual focused. 
And to your point, uh, and I think you make a great point argument in the book as well, you know, um, technology, you know, coming into the 80s and the 90s and, you know, technology began on this resurgence. So before all of that time, your degree was really kind of your uh, entryway, so to speak, into, you know, what are those different things? But do you think that now with all of the data, all of the access to knowledge that you can just have literally at the swipe of your phone, all of the different pieces of information that you can gather just as one human, whether you're 13, 33 or 43, do you feel like that has changed within our educational system, the real meaning of that piece of paper? Yeah, so there's a there's a line in the book you might remember that's uh, from the founder of General Assembly. And General Assembly is kind of an urban community college to learn the basic tech skills. And the founder uh, of General Assembly, would they've, they've now got about 20 campuses, I want to say, around the U.S. and, and a few international as well. Um, he's a sociology major. And actually, uh, his name is Matt Brimer. And, you know, he had the same problem as Zach Sims. He wanted to become sort of technical enough to, to be dangerous. He, he saw that his degree in, in sociology was, was really great for building community, for understanding community, which is what helped him get General Assembly off the ground and build this whole um, really loyal following. I really attribute that to Matt's ability to, to kind of build community and, and understand these softer things. Uh, you know, when the whole world was moving online, he was moving General Assembly offline. In my venture firm at the time, we even passed on the investment because the partners at our firm said, wait a minute, you know, everything is Khan Academy and Coursera. The whole world is moving online. Why would this guy build physical spaces? He has real estate costs. He's in cities. That makes no sense. Um, and in actuality, that's what people, that's what people want is that, you know, community and that, um, and, and that sort of uh, physicality to things. And so Matt's got a great quote in the book where he says, your education should always be in beta. And that's, you know, an engineering term for your education should always be a work in progress. And he talks about how these uh, proxies for relevance or, you know, what we point to to say we're relevant um, today or tomorrow or 10 years from now. It used to be that you could point to a degree in English from 30 years ago and say, well, I went to XYZ school and therefore I'm qualified. Um, in reality, today, like, like you mentioned, we have so many ways to learn and the, the environment is changing so fast that I think we've got to think about our education in beta and think about what skills, what small skills are we, are we, are we learning on a day-to-day basis, on a week or month basis um, to, to really sort of stay at the forefront. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, that's exhausting. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to live in that reality. I want my slip of paper from 20 years ago to be, to be relevant. But I think that because of the nature of, of the changing tools and the technology that's constantly being developed, you know, even if you've got a slip of paper that says computer science or engineering, that by no means means you have this sort of carte blanche, um, you know, invitation to future relevance the same across any degree that I think it's the humility of continuing to learn, the humility of kind of in, embracing these new tools, um, you know, just knowing sort of where, where they are and, and how to talk about them meaningfully. You know, today uh, you may not need to understand everything about blockchain or Bitcoin, but it's obviously something that's in the media, something that there's a lot of attention within financial services, for example. So it, it's helpful to, you know, spend an hour reading about blockchain, trying to understand, trying to wrap your head around 
this new technological phenomenon. And I think that sort of willingness to continually learn is, is far more important than where you went to school or, you know, what your degree title is. Absolutely. And for, for our listeners, we will put uh, in the show notes an understanding of what blockchain is. And if you have not heard of this, this is a um, <laughs> it's a very fascinating thing that could literally change uh, financial transactions forever. Um, it's a very fascinating topic. I've done some research on it myself, uh, even though I'm not Mr. Techie, but I'm always interested in what's going on in technology. And it's a it's a it's a very fascinating piece um, that it, some of you've probably heard of the term cryptocurrency. So don't worry about it. We'll put it in the show notes to get a chance to read all about that. Um, let's let's shift gears here for the last uh, few minutes of our interview. I want to switch to the executive side of this conversation. Um, what should executives, CEOs, HR directs, uh, now that we've had all of this conversation to talk about why, you know, uh, your path and your career um, can still be relevant, uh, despite not having all of the techie parts uh, baked throughout your career. As an executive, what do you think that executives who kind of for traditionally, you know, over time have valued highly specialized people? What do you think the biggest shift is for those executives that they have to begin to make in order to be able to to find and retain that sort of talent that plays kind of in the middle between fuzzy and techie? Yeah, so I think um, what's interesting is companies, I think, tend to they tend to think on one side of the spectrum or, or the other. Right. So if you're hiring a, a team of copywriters, you say, well, copywriters, let's find everybody who had, you know, a creative literature background, creative writing background. Um, if we're hiring for a product or engineering team, let's hire, you know, only people that, that have these very specific uh, technical skills. I think, you know, if, if we can sort of break up this, this spectrum and think about um, building kind of pluralistic teams, teams with people from various different methodological backgrounds, so not just degree titles, but, you know, people that have really learned um, you know, the methodologies of, of psychology or some of the methodologies of anthropology or, or, or philosophy. And, you know, those individuals, uh, you know, obviously if it's an engineering role that, that's critical to the infrastructure of the company that's, you know, requiring uh, deep sort of engineering talent, then you've got to hire an engineer for that job. Um, you know, that, that's, that's good, that goes without saying. Um, but I think where this is an interesting conversation is if you've got these sort of blended teams, so let's say it's product development. Um, you know, product development, you might say, well, we need to hire somebody who's been a product manager and a bunch of engineers to build it. Um, you know, in reality, these, these, uh, the languages and, and sort of the technical specs of, of what's going to define a product are changing constantly. So I think if you can build a team that's methodologically diverse, where you've got people coming into the room with perspectives from these different backgrounds, um, and you're providing a resource within your company, or you're providing, um, let's say, a sponsorship where people can use, uh, you know, company funds or they can use uh, education dollars to, you know, they're encouraged to go to places like Treehouse or General Assembly or Codecademy or Coursera, um, and sort of incentivize to continually invest in their own education and, and, and technical abilities. Um, I think then you've got this really dangerous uh, set of uh, set of human resources where you've got people that are methodologically diverse, people with all these different backgrounds and perspectives, 
you know, from philosophy to psychology to political science to, you know, they're seeing the world through these different lenses and experiences that they've had. Um, but then on top of that, you're basically, uh, you know, you're giving them some of the, the, the leeway to learn some of these new skills or giving them the confidence to be able to talk with their, you know, engineering counterparts to not sort of be second fiddle to, to what they say the technical specs are, but to push back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, you guys are building in this particular language, but I've actually done some research and, you know, why are we not thinking about this lighter weight, uh, newer way of building this? You know, they're, um, you know, oftentimes when you hire somebody who's been in, for example, an engineering role for 20 years, um, they're stuck in the ways of doing things from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And so on the, on the flip side, if you hire somebody that's, maybe a philosophy major, but they've taken the past six months and really dug in and learned uh, different languages at, 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 you know, a general assembly or, or one of these platforms, um, that person might actually be far more impactful to your business because they're thinking uh, in terms of, you know, not just their own sort of personal lens and experience, but, you know, without biases, without sort of perspective on what they learned 20 years ago and why they should continually do that because that's their skill set. Um, I think, you know, that open-mindedness can actually be a real boon uh, to innovation within your company. So I think those are some of the things I would think about on the executive side of things or how can you build, you know, diverse teams? How can you bring different methodologies to bear against, you know, how you, uh, how you build product, how you innovate internally? Um, give people sort of the space and the reimbursement or whatever it might be to, to continually invest in themselves, you know, whether you bring some of those tools in-house or you allow people to use some of these great, you know, online workshops or, or in-person workshops if you're in a city where that's offered. Um, but generally, every city now has, you know, 25 tech incubators and meetups at night and courses you can take in JavaScript. And, you know, I, I, I'd be uh, hard-pressed to find a single city in America or even in the world um, where there's not some sort of tech meetup. You know, I've been in Algiers and Dakar and Cairo and all sorts of cities where there's a really, really vibrant startup scene. And uh, so, you know, it's not like if you're in Chattanooga, there's, there's nothing to do. Actually, Chattanooga is a, you know, a hugely vibrant startup scene, same as Lexington, Kentucky, same as, uh, you know, so many other, you know, Raleigh-Durham area, for example. Um, so I would say engage with your local tech community as well and sort of allow people the space to, you know, invest and keep their educations in beta. Oh, that, that's a that's a fascinating idea, especially keeping your education in beta. And so what kind of misconceptions or, or things or, or kind of common pitfalls that you've seen? I mean, I'm sure you've watched a ton of pitches uh, from companies, and I'm sure that I'm sure a lot of CEOs that even brought you in to kind of, you know, help them in, in some shape, form or fashion in their company. But what are some of maybe those common gaps or, 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 or misunderstandings or misconceptions that you've known executives to make that might be of the baby boomer generation when it comes to, you know, their talent or how they're building out their company? What, what are some of those things that you've probably noticed that you'd like to speak to? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing to, to consider is uh, create, uh, create a really lean approach uh, to, to how you innovate. And so rather than trying to find the answer, you know, before you start, and then building for a number of months to solve the problem that you think you understand, um, you know, have some humility in the approach to the problem. Really sort of, you know, dig in and, and ask, you know, a lot of questions. So I, I think if you get to, uh, 
kind of customer customer development or user experience interviews or research, you know, bring in the sociologists who work at your company, bring in the anthropologists, bring in the people that uh, remember from the, their their days studying those things. Okay, you know, how can we uh, how can we build a questionnaire without bias that asks people what the what the problem specifically is that we need to solve for? You know, and once you've got a perspective on the problem, don't build a singular solution. Maybe build three attempts, three really lightweight attempts at a solution using some of these new new tools, like I mentioned before. You know, Sketch and Envision and Framer, um, where you could maybe build three different prototypes that are clickable. Um, that are actually they feel they look and feel like a real product, but you just haven't put all the time and resources for months and months to build the product. But instead, you've spent you know one week getting this uh, really lean prototype up and running. You know, build three or three or five of those and show those to people and say you know does this solve the problem? Well, you know, yes and no. Actually, we wanted more of this or more of that. Um, so I think that to the extent that you can create, um, you can A/B test different lightweight versions and use some of these cheaper, you know, uh, new, new tools uh, to really kind of create basic prototypes and get to the source of a problem, um, really ask questions to get to the source of the problem. The, the biggest uh, pitfall, you know, that I, that I see generally is uh, people building tech, um, thinking that tech is going to solve everything, and then afterwards, once it's built, looking for the problem, saying, well, we have this great solution, I, we think it solves this problem, um, but realizing that the problem is actually off. So, I would say, you know, start with the problem. Uh, start with, you know, asking a ton of questions, doing this customer discovery, user experience discovery, um, build sort of lightweight prototypes uh, to A/B test, you know, three different versions, uh, and then once you've got a lot of confidence, then sort of put the muscle behind, you know, building, building out the whole product. So, um, you know, that's a parallel from the startup world, but I think the companies that do it really well um, really identify the problem up front before they start building the tech. Um, and then they, they build the tech in a really lightweight way where they can constantly iterate on it and keep it really fresh. Well, you speak to a, a methodology of agile, which a lot of people are starting to discover um, works in more than just technology companies. And so the process that you just kind of described, do you personally feel that that could work for anybody, whether we're making cereal or whether we're, you know, uh, you know, uh, or horticulturalists, or were you know? Do do you feel like that sort of thinking and i and ideating only works in iterative development? Only works in in technical companies. I think you know it's it's a good question. I think with uh, you know with anything where you can build uh, you can build sort of a couple different versions uh, and and sort of get get data get feedback. Uh, so you're you're building a lightweight version. You're measuring. And then you're learning from that, and then you're repeating that process. Um, I don't think it's unique to tech. Um, it's actually something that you know, in a in a former life, uh, I, I did an innovation fellowship with, under the Obama administration. I went to the White House, and uh, and was really tasked with bringing this methodology into D.C. Uh, and so one of the things we were working on there was bringing lean startup or agile kind of methodologies into the way that government gives out grant money. And it's the same sort of process. So this is something where, you know, if uh, if there's deemed to be an education solution that people think works, um, you know, why should the government give one grant of $50 million to this organization? You know, instead, could we A-B test, uh, you know, 10 different versions at a really small scale of grants, you know, and, and see them 
uh, actually function and work for three months or six months and then see which ones are actually working, you know, what, where the data is not just theoretical, but it's actually, you know, because the program is having real impact. And then can we do a sort of Series A grant investment and then a Series B grant investment and really think about, you know, in, in the venture capital methodology, um, you put small dollars to work against really high-risk things. And then as you de-risk the business, as the team gets stronger, as the technology gets stronger, as the market proves out a little bit more, you start, uh, as you de-risk the business, you're able to put bigger and bigger dollars to work against the company because you've de-risked it, um, you know, that the valuation is going up. Um, and so there's, there, there are ways that I think you can think about um, this regardless of what industry you're in and just sort of, you know, putting lightweight feelers out and then when you get data back and the data uh, appears to be proving, you know, uh, to the positive, then, you know, puts, you know, larger and larger uh, emphasis and, and confidence in, in those sort of in those sort of products. Now, I think that that's a really, really cool. And the fact that you were able to take that and put it in D.C., uh, which is definitely a hard place to crack new ideas. Um, so I, I think you speak to something that's really, really good. But I think for our audience, whether you're leading a, a, a large, you know, like I mentioned, a serial company <laughs> or you're you know, leading a marketing company or you're leading a technology company, having that idea of uh, making more than one solution, I think, is a fascinating idea uh, because we're always looking for the silver bullet. Right. Um, when we when we're doing companies and so trying to find more than one and and testing that you know, uh, against the market, I think is a, is a great idea. So, so Scott, just, just as we wrap up here, what kind of things do you want, uh, at the end of the day, someone who picks up this book, uh, whether they are a, a school teacher to, to the, to the executive, what do you want people to walk away with understanding? Uh, and what are you really trying to get across, uh, to the audience in this book? Yeah. I'm um, thanks for asking that question. Really, you know, it's, um, it's sort of the confidence that you can participate in this uh, sort of what sometimes feels like an inaccessible uh, elitist kind of tech world where, you know, you say, well, you know, I didn't really have the foresight to study computer science when I was in middle school, so I can't participate in this world. It's too bad. Um, really, it was kind of driven by a personal, you know, personal experience with my own extended family in places like Boise, Idaho and Denver, Colorado, and, and they said, you know, well, you know, you're in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina as well. Um, you know, you're in, uh, you're in Silicon Valley, you're in technology. Um, that's great. You know, it seems like such an exciting place. You have beanbag chairs and free lunch and all these things. Um, you know, it's too bad I can't work there because uh, I don't really have the right skills or I, I didn't study electrical engineering or computer science or I'm not technical. I, you know, I can't make, even make my iPhone work. You know, how could I get a job in tech? Um, well, I'll tell you, there are lots of people at these companies who, you know, for better or worse, they, they also can't make their iPhone work. And so, uh, you know, it's really uh, to kind of myth bust the idea that um, just because you have a certain background, you're from a certain geography, because you have a certain degree title, um, that you can't participate in this, you know, quote unquote, you know, technology world. Um, really, everything at this point has been touched by technology. I think it's, you know, it behooves all of us to kind of 
become familiar with and not intimidated by data, not intimidated by uh, some of these new tools. And I think there's so many different ways to kind of um, watch YouTube videos, you know, at first. And when you get confident with that, then, you know, go to Codecademy or go to one of these online platforms and go through the basic, you know, first few lectures. Um, there's another uh, company or another platform that, you know, we should include in the, in the podcast materials. It's called bento.io, B-E-N-T-O. And it's just a great uh, curated list of all the online lectures for every different language you can possibly think of that was curated by a kid uh, from NYU who studied, I think, political theory, um, who just really loved to code and wanted to learn on his own. He created this whole list of every resource you can possibly imagine, from video lectures to tutorials online. Nearly everything is free. And if you wanted to go through, you know, hundreds of hours of, of DIY teach yourself, I mean, there it is right there. It's one through 100. Here's what to do. Um, wow. And so, you know, things are very accessible. And so, you know, I think it's the, the takeaway that I want people to have is that the skills that you have, the passions that you have are, are very relevant even today. They're things that are not going away with robots and automation. If anything, those are the skills that actually become stronger. And if you can, you know, not be intimidated by technology and you can embrace it enough to, you know, be conversant and know where the building blocks are, you can really get, you know, a job in any of these companies, any of these industries, um, you know, the opportunities in, in uh, drones and self-driving cars and blockchain. I mean, these are, see, these are concepts that seem kind of highfalutin and, and tough, to, tough to grasp, but really these are new technologies that are being applied to old school industries like trucking, like mining, like uh, finance, like, you know, all these. So if you understand anything from any of these traditional industries, and you can get become conversant enough to be dangerous in one of these new technologies. Um, that's a really winning combination. Where um, you know, I could I could tell stories all day, but there's uh, a guy that I don't feature in the book. He actually got cut out of the book by my editor, but he's in my Dropbox folder, and I've got a great story about him. Um, but he's a, a political science major from London School of Economics, a Pakistani American guy from Texas, um, whose grandfather was a trucker, and he really understood trucking. And he also saw the coming wave of Internet of Things, uh, IoT devices, and how sensors had become so cheap. And he basically built a company around uh, a sensor device that goes on the trucking engine that tells you when a truck is loaded or unloaded based on the RPMs of the truck, tells you where the truck is based on GPS. And he's built out this huge uh, fleet management company, which is doing incredibly well and, you know, kind of skated right into some regulation that Washington imposed on, on the trucking world. And so you think, uh, well, here's a guy who studied political science, who understood trucking, who sort of understood Internet of Things, and he was able to build what's now probably a $100 million company um, because he understood these three different worlds and was able to kind of lightly piece them together. And so, you know, if you're coming from any of these backgrounds, any of these industries, um, you know, think about how you can apply technology to your industry that you understand because there's a big, big opportunity and those are exactly the companies that, that venture capitalists are looking for. Interesting. Interesting. So final question, what's next for Scott? So the, the book uh, has been a lot of fun and uh, in the process right now of, of kind of sharing the, the message and the stories um, in the U.S. and what's exciting is uh, the book, you know, for anyone out there that has a foreign language uh, propensity. Uh, the book is going to come out in Japanese and Korean and Chinese, I, I believe Portuguese and a couple others. Uh, 
sometime in this year or next year. So, um, so that's sort of what uh, what's on my uh, plate for the for the time being, and still kind of working with various uh, startups and. Uh, in, the, in an advising capacity, and so yeah, I'd encourage anyone that uh, listens to the program and enjoys it, um, you know, wants to kind of help me share this message, or, or uh, you know, or kind of give give back in this in this in this community. Um, please, you know, please feel free to get in touch. I'd love to I'd love to meet any of you. Absolutely. Well, Scott, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I think uh, one of the things that I personally take away from this conversation and that I know should be very important to our audience is knowing that at the end of the day, um, having a breadth of knowledge is, is, is just as advantageous as being highly specialized in one area. And I think that through the examples, the research that you've provided in your book, and even just helping people to be a little bit more comfortable about their career path, not being such a, a straight and narrow path. But it's OK to zig and zag because that information is actually preparing you to be uh, potentially, you know, a leader in your field. So, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Chris. Well, I have to say that this week uh, is another great episode, another great interview, another great week on high level wisdom for new generation leaders i know you got a lot out of this interview so feel free to write it down replay it and i want you to do me a couple of favors here one i want to hear from you if you're an audience member and you're listening and you're loving what we are doing and you love the conversation this week send me an email chris at highlevelwisdom.com if you're into social media you can find us at the handle at high level wisdom on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can share this information and share this episode you're listening to right now on LinkedIn. Let's talk about it. Let's start a conversation. I want to hear the parts that really stuck out to you. What are you learning about being from a different part of uh, industry and wanting to play inside of the tech world? Um, this book is fascinating. I highly suggest that you grab you a copy. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I look forward to hearing you and sharing with you more interviews that we're conducting next week. Thank you so much. Whatever you choose to do, make sure you do it at a high level. Talk to you soon.